China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Ning Long, Assistant Professor at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University. Today we'll be discussing her research on central development initiatives and their impact on state business relations. Ning, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start out by asking you a question about your intellectual biography. And I was looking at your CV and saw that you'd started undergrad Remen University. You were studying you know, labor economics. You then ended up going to University of Wisconsin-Madison and where you start researching solid waste management and, and urban transportation systems. So that's quite a journey. And I wanted to ask, how did you come to be looking at this sets of issues? What were the kind of questions or puzzles that was motivating you to spend a good chunk of your professional life researching this? So I was always interested in development. And then so when I first entered UW-Madison, I was actually in development studies and with applied agricultural economics department. And then I realized what, is, what matters the most for development and its quality are political institutions. So I transferred to a political science department and started to research more on institution and development. I did spend several summers doing fieldwork in China, just, you know, asking people around random interviewees. And then I started to notice in 2016 that there is this strange phenomenon of deprivatization of all the very successful and smoothly running private bus firms nationwide. And I couldn't find an easy answer to that. So I started to look into public service sectors and gradually I included solid waste treatment sector, wastewater treatment sector, and that formed my dissertation eventually. Can I ask, the, you know, we're going to in a minute get into the, the core puzzle that motivated your dissertation and now is part of the, the book project you're working on. But can you tell us a little bit about the field work that you did? Where did you go? And talk to us a little bit about the process of access and doing these interviews. Yeah, I went to a lot of places. I think over years, a total of 15 cities in um, five provinces plus Beijing and Shanghai. So it was a very difficult process. I basically reach out to friends and acquaintances and say, I am just interested in meeting people, government officials, businessmen, whoever I can get, I want to talk to them. And so eventually I got help from a lot of people. So with the help of these mutual acquaintance, which was a good foundation for building trust between me and my interviewees, I got to make a lot of interviews. And I usually would interview the same person at least twice to make sure that I get, so to speak, get the truth out and build trust more. So it was a long process. Like the last time I did field work, it was 18 months. So we're going to get into the this issue of, of you know, what you call deprivatization and changing state business relations. But I think it would help listeners if, if I asked you just a few background questions to help set the scene. And the first is, I certainly didn't know much until I was reading your dissertation about public service sector and and kind of trends and waves of privatization. So I wanted to ask you if you could just give us a brief history or overview of Beijing or China's approach to privatization of public service sectors. You know, when did this begin? How far did privatization extend and, and how is it working? 
The public service sector was largely privatized starting in the late 1980s. It was when um, urban areas exploded, but the local governments didn't have enough financial resources to deal with public services. The government was um, short of money to supply for buses, to treat garbage. China didn't have a modern garbage treatment site until late 1980s. And so local government, a central government actually decided that we should privatize these sectors to have private firms provide the services. And so it was a very typical privatization process, like most other developing countries. And private firms quickly like took over these sectors within a few years. In the 1990s and early 2000s, most of Chinese cities have privately provided buses, wastewater treatment, and um, solid waste treatment sites. Now, is there much consolidation in, in these industries? So, you know, here in the East Coast, for example, you see big companies like Casella, which they do trash up in Vermont. They do trash down here in Maryland. So is there much, you know, were there, were there a few big players throughout the country or is this a patchwork of smaller players? In the wastewater treatment sector, they were large companies and it actually started with foreign owned companies from France and Japan. In the solid waste treatment sector and urban bus sectors, it was all small firms, usually locally firms. And they, there are all sorts of them. There are like um, local silk textile firms that decided to enter a new sector. There were, it's funny, there were also local mafia, like providing the service and exchange to protect their business. It takes all sorts. Switching gears to the second background question, which, which for listeners, these will intersect in a moment, but I wanted to ask you about the cadre evaluation system, which is a central component of, of the work that you did. I think many listeners will, and myself included, won't know much about the cadre evaluation system other than a view that, oh, this is this is what ties promotion to, to local economic growth. But I wondered if you could unpack this a little bit more. What is the cadre evaluation system? What does it work? And then the final question, which I found really interesting that you explored here is, what do local level cadres think about the system? The cadre evaluation system is a top-down management and control system for Chinese Communist Party to control all the local officials. In terms of structure, the closest Western institution to cadre evaluation system will actually be the Catholic Church. This is a comparison that neither side will appreciate. It's a pyramid structure where you have five levels of government, central, province, municipality, county, and village. At each level, local officials will receive a set of quantitative evaluation criteria of their work and performance at the end of the year. They fill out this evaluation form where they report what they did in the past year. And then this upper level government would compare these evaluation results and then promote and reward the best performers. So this is a strictly controlled top-down system to incentivize local government officials to follow central guidance and enforce local public policies. Is there a one-size-fits-all evaluation system for all villages, all townships, all municipalities, or are, are the evaluations catered or adjusted based on if you're a, you know, you're a, a sort of municipal cadre on the coastal area versus you're a municipal cadre out in, you know, deep into the country in an agricultural area? In terms of what you are evaluated upon, there is very little variation. So all the officials will be evaluated upon economic growth, and um, nowadays environmental quality. However, the standard set for you does vary depending on where you are. If you are in a richer coastal province, 
your city might receive a higher target for economic growth. And actually, you just answered my next question. Are there any other evaluation inputs aside from growth and, as you said, increasingly environmental targets? What else might a might a cadre be evaluated on? So economic growth is the biggest one, and then there are something called one vote veto targets. So these are the core of these are the policies that the central government has standard one size fits all. Evaluation criteria such as population control and nowadays carbon emission. So if that part changes, oh, and crime rate. So these are the one veto vote that all the cities probably will receive same targets and they have to fulfill it. There is another group of targets, social development. So this includes percentage of fiscal expenditure to education, to pensions, etc. There is also sustainable development, such as the size of arable land. A local government has to preserve the size of the forest. You have to preserve, etc. And then the next group will be environmental quality. So these are air qualities, water qualities, etc. So wastewater treatment rate, for example, that I study is one of them. So most cities would have to have 85% of their wastewaters treated. That is a typical evaluation criteria. I'm curious, and maybe this begins to move towards your core argument, which I'll get to in a moment, but just want to linger for a little bit more in the core of the cadre evaluation system. Oftentimes when performance is being measured with objective targets, there's a great incentive to find ways to, I don't know if you ever watched the show, The Wire, where they focused on crime statistics, but they called it juking the stats. In other words, you you fudge the numbers, you try to find ways to make it look like you were a star performer, even if you weren't. What are some of the realistic outcomes of the cadre evaluation system? I would imagine not every cadre sits down and fills the form out accurately. I would imagine there's a lot of sort of incentives to to be uh, you know to f- fudging the evaluation such that you look better than you are. Do you know? Do we know anything about the kind of lived actual practice of the evaluation system? Is Absolutely. So there's plenty of research on juking the stats, as you mentioned, and gaming the system. So we know that local officials fake evaluation numbers. So they would just fill in, for example, we know that GDP number is constantly inflated by local officials to look better. And then there's also gaming the system. So for example, they would intentionally move resources to do some surface work. So one example that I found in the fieldwork of how you game the system is this local commerce bureau. They receive a target. They say, this year we have to have a 40% growth in new businesses, but they really couldn't get that target fulfilled. So what they did is at the end of the year, they went to the busiest business on their commercial street and they asked these business to basically divide the shop front into two sides and put on two like shop names and so that they can count this as 100% increase. So there are a lot of ways to game the system. In a recent paper that I co-authored with Zuo Cai from Fudan University, we're also discussing that actually even before they game the system, local officials would try to change and bargain over their evaluation criteria to their benefit. So there are a lot of ways to make the cadre evaluation system work for you as a local official. Nonetheless, those are still very limited efforts. Cadre evaluation system is still strictly controlled top down. So what I discovered and I write about in this book is actually that local officials try to work outside of the cadre evaluation system. 
If we think about the promotion criteria for local officials, it's like when a student is trying to enter college. The cadre evaluation system is your SAT test that you have to pass and get a good score. But that alone doesn't actually get guarantee that you will enter a good college. So you need to do something extra. For example, like a high school student, you might be a volunteer in South America. In China, local cadres would invent their own exams, and this is where they start to be creative. And then implement policy in a way that the central government sometimes did not expect. That is a very, very smooth segue into the focus of the dissertation, and now updated in the book project. So you were looking at how national environmental goals or development goals, how these were implemented locally. And what some of the intended and unintended consequences are. So maybe now is just a good opportunity to basically step back and ask you to lay out the big puzzle or thesis here, connecting these pieces of cadre evaluation system, deprivatization, and and national development goals. How these all come together to give us a, a much better nuanced picture of the the, the realities of, of governance in China. Absolutely. So the central government of China started to care about environment and sustainable development ever since the late 2000s, and so they didn't quite know how to promote sustainable development. So they issued very blurry central initiatives, such as we want cleaner water, cleaner air, cleaner soil, everything. Local governments then are allowed to experiment on these fields to、um, reach sustainability. So the local governments responded to these national initiatives, such as clean air. And one of the sectors they decided to work to、um, reach the clean air goal is the urban bus sector, which are largely occupied by private bus firms. So what the local governments launched in this sector as their policy experiments are three different projects. The first one is indeed to respond to clean air initiative by requiring the bus firms to use cleaner. Fuels such as LPG, liquefied petroleum gas, instead of traditional gas. The problem with changing to LPG is the local governments do not actually require the bus firms to change the bus into a matching engine that is compatible with LPG. So a lot of these bus firms will actually simply move to LPG at first. Without actually upgrading their buses, making this LPG fuel switch not really effective in reaching clean air goal, and the local governments did not quite did not quite respond to these bus firms' behavior. The second project they launched in the urban bus sector was aesthetic projects. So they basically say, now we're going to tell the upper level government we are working in the bus sector. To reach sustainability, so I want the bus firms to look nice. I want all the buses in the city to look new, look the same, and look pretty, so to speak. They force the bus firms then to replace all the well-running, not yet expiring vehicles into this homogeneous-looking bus fleet, so that when they invite upper-level officials to look at their policy outcome, they will see a beautiful, maintained public transportation sector. The third project then they. Launch is actually to apply for a bunch of national city titles. So, for example, national civilization city. And how do you how do you measure a city's civilization degree in the urban bus sector? It means again the buses have to arrive at the stop at the same time by a timetable. The buses have to look well maintained, very clean, no advertisement on the bus body. So the bus firms were also required to remove 
advertisement on buses, which was a major income source. So if you look at all of these campaigns they launched in response to sustainability, except for the fuel part, the other two projects are actually focusing on the look of the sector rather than substantial and sustainable development of the sector, making these reforms while expensive and the private bus firms are paying for them, but they're not actually effective. The one effective reform that will respond to clean air initiative where it's switching to cleaner fuel is actually not enforced in a way that's going to reach real sustainability, but superficially done. And in fact, for example, in one city in the South that I did fuel work in, private bus firms switched to LPG like for a brief few months, and then they quietly switched back to traditional fuel, and the local government actually did not care about it. So a lot of these reforms were really focusing on look, scale, visibility of the reform rather than sustainable development. Just as a follow-up, you had mentioned that some of the private firms took some initial superficial steps, but then would either switch back or, or would f- like fully complete a transition or transformation. So it had only a, a real surface level impact. What power do these private firms have to push back? Because even if some of these were just aesthetic, nonetheless, there's a cost imposition that the local cadre is pushing onto the private company. Why don't the private companies just say, no, we're not going to do it? So they tried. They have very limited power because this is a public service. They sign a contract with local government and the price of the service is also mandated, regulated by the government. They have limited power, but indeed they try to push back. So for example, in the city of Guangzhou, when these visibility projects are pushed so far that the private bus firms start to incur huge losses, a Macau-owned bus firm sued the local government, but they lost the case. And basically they were heavily punished to bankruptcy. So all the other private bus firms watched this case and decided that there is really no use to fight the local government. We might as well just quietly follow. And they so they actually hung on for as long as they could until a point hits when there were so many projects demanded of them that they can no longer afford it. And then they started passive resistance. So they started to like do a bad job, refuse to obey orders from the local government, refuse to update their fine buses. And eventually that's how the local government decided that these private bus firms are really no longer obeying our orders and we are going to deprivatize them so that we can push for more projects in this sector to showcase our ability. So, th- so that's a good, yeah, my next question was gonna be on deprivatization. First of all, what does deprivatization look like in practice? So you've got to this point where these private firms are dragging their feet. You know, they're they're not going on with local cadres. Sort of what literally happens by which a local government municipality will will sort of deprivatize these companies? What does that look like? So in the bus sector, it mostly takes on the form of forced sale. The local government basically send this contract to the bus firms for under market price to purchase their firms. Bus firms would then resist, usually requiring a higher price to, um, to sell to the local government. And then the local government will get creative. So first of all, they would use the tool of tax system. A lot of private firms in China evade tax because the tax rates are set so high and so complicated. So tax evasion is almost like, let's say, a sin that most private firms would commit. Local governments leverage. So they, they normally look the other way or don't enforce, except when they need to for selective reasons. 
Exactly. And so this is a great opportunity for them to use tax code to coerce the firms to um, sign the contract. There are also more extreme cases that I observed. For example, I observed in a also coastal, very developed city, actually, the local government would set this task force and they would work at night. They would just visit this bus owner's home and then basically threaten them with like language such as, I know where your family works, you should think for the greater good, and this is the right decision for the city and for your firm. And basically, so there are threats also. There's also use of police force. So the police will sometimes just show up at the bus company's parking lot and then just lock it down. There are many ways to basically have a for sale done. So then the, the, the private company, Jude's Bus Company, now is submits to Lungning local government. And so through coercion, through threat of punitive taxation or back taxes. Um, so now you, you the, the local government now gets control of the assets of the bus company. What practical effect does this have? How does this improve the, from a, a, a local cadre perspective, how does this help or assist them? It seems like you've now just taken on the requirement that you're running and operating a local bus company rather than having someone else operate it. How does this benefit me? That's right. Actually, it does not benefit the local government in the long term. So in my observation, once a city, let's say, re-nationalized the bus sector, they start to incur huge fiscal loss because it is an expensive sector to maintain. However, here is another trick of the cadre evaluation system that makes local officials willing to do it. So local officials are rotated every 3.3 years in my data set. This is to prevent they grow local network for corruption opportunities. Therefore, when an official think about, should I deprivatize these bus firms who are not listening to me? They're not thinking about long-term fiscal cost incurred on their government. It's the successor's problem. So nobody needs to take responsibility for this kind of political decisions, and therefore it's easy for them to make it. This actually gets to a broader question, which is one of the assessments that I think many external observers have about China's political system is that it's able to think over longer time horizons. Part of that is it doesn't have regular democratic elections. So instead of having you know, someone, you know, who could be in there for a few years and then thrown out. Ostensibly, the, the, the feeling is you've got an authoritarian political system with a longer time horizon. I'm always struck, though, and as you just articulated, that actually when you look at a more micro level throughout the country, you see lots of very short-term calculations being made. Now, I guess Beijing is assessing, Beijing is aware of this, right? It, it, it knows that when you have rotations of, of cadres, they're going to you know, attempt to goose economic growth such that they can move upward and onward. And then it's not their problem if they've built a, a facility, a sports stadium that no one is using. I wanted to ask you, is there any shift in thinking that Beijing is having about this trade-off between if we were to have officials stay in place longer, then they would own more of their decisions than they do now? Is there any shift in thinking or are they still thinking, look, 3.3 years, that's about as long as we want them there. Otherwise, they grow local networks, you know, local entrenched networks, which actually pervert governance and implementation of several central regulations even more. Beijing is definitely aware that this is a problem. So they have been like trying to come up with new methods to do with short-term thinking at the local level. One example is they start to add into cadre evaluation system, the so-called 
exit evaluation. So this is particularly in the environment area where the state now after a local leader leave the city, for example, he's still responsible for the city's environmental degradation for up to three, five, 10 years. Whether that is effective, we have not yet seen evidence yet, so we do not know. But this evaluation to me, I have reservations about whether this method is going to be effective because promotion in China, it highly depends on your political network. You will be promoted by someone you're loyal to. When a higher level official look at some local official that he himself promoted, will he want to punish this local official for previous faults? That is going to reflect badly on himself. And therefore, I am not sure, like, why would any local officials have the incentive to punish others for doing a bad job? This is also, every, if everybody is doing the same thing, you punish someone else, meaning yourself is also exposed and can be punished. So we will see whether this kind of evaluation works. So that, I mean, that gets to maybe a final few big, big picture questions here, tying this all together. Uh, I'm now going to ask you a question which you gave me to ask you. So that's why it'll be a good question. But, you know, many attribute China's great success to its ability to motivate, guide, incentivize, punish cadres such that they are they are implementing uh, they're implementing the guidelines of Beijing and indeed if we think about over the broad reform and opening period although it has come at, at environmental cost um, the incentive cadres have to pursue economic growth has been a contributing factor to China's runaway economic economic success so some would say problems aside the cadre evaluation system is an attribute of China's overall success what is your, now having done a very, very deep case study of what the actual lived experience of the cadre evaluation system is and what some of the unintended consequences are, how do you look at the broader cadre evaluation system as a contributing factor to China's success? And I think as a, a forward-looking question, how will the cadre evaluation system shape China's future success for better or worse? So first of all, I think it is absolutely right, as all these research show, that cadre evaluation is an important engine for China's economic growth. However, it is important to know that the reason is not that the government is doing more for economic growth because of cadre evaluation system, it's that they were actually doing less. They allow private firms to thrive. They basically let the market take over so that they can reach economic growth. All of the cadre evaluation target on economic growth was actually implemented by less tax, um, less state intervention, more competition, freedom to the market in some ways. This is different than using cadre evaluation system to require local officials to do more, like a, a government entity, such as preserving the environment. This is a field where the government itself needs to do more and we actually do not yet have evidence in whether the central government can successfully push the local government officials to work on sustainability related policy area where these officials do not enjoy the harvest, so to speak. All the sustainable development requires long-term development and cadre evaluation system only rewards you for your short-term achievement. So that I think is a fundamental dilemma in how, what cadre evaluation system in China can do regarding long-term goals. You know, final question is, is zooming out a little bit more, and, and I would 
ask you to humor me and, and feel free prognosticating a little bit. You know, there's a big set of questions right now that are focusing on efforts that the current General Secretary Xi Jinping has made to reform, restructure, upgrade China's governance system to better position it to deal with challenges that are coming down the road for, for China. I think a lot of the discourse in D.C. is focusing on one aspect of this, which is the, the rise or the reassertion of party authority. But when I hear you tell this story about the kind of actual lived experience on the ground in China, which is where 99% of governance action takes place. And I think although we focus a lot on Xi Jinping's kind of broader geopolitical goals, I would imagine 90% of his day is thinking about domestic governance issues. And so you've painted the picture of a successful in many ways, but still in some ways a system which is plagued by problems of properly creating incentive structures such that you get optimal governance outcomes. So I wanted to ask if you could just kind of zoom out and, and big picture think through how do you evaluate China's governance system in the year 2021 and its ability to power through the next generation of challenges China is facing? It's done a wonderful job, again, imperfectly, but it's done a great job, you know, since the death of Mao and, and, and the, the rise to power of Deng of surmounting a large number of very practical, thorny local governance issues. But it seems that many of the elements of that secret sauce are, are shifting and changing. So how do you evaluate China's governance system today and how do you think about it able to perform in the future? Will it be able to do as it's done for four decades and just adapt and find a way? Or do you see some more structural headwinds that are beginning to emerge, which could complicate future governance performance? So in terms of the quality of China's governance for the next decade or more, my worry is that it's become stiffer compared to in the 1980s and in 1990s. Politics is coming back to be the dominant factor. So in my interviews with local officials, I started to see this trend where they believe political loyalty rather than capability now is taking over in determining their career. And that is making them change their course in local governance. They would rather do less, first of all, than do more and be wrong. And they are less likely to have any political innovation compared to before. All they dare to innovate now is when the center says, okay, we want to promote this area, this policy area, for example, environment or anti-poverty, the local officials have to get this pre-approval that, okay, this is a field that is safe to work on. And then they're going to have some small innovations in those fields, but they dare not to come up with policies and propose policy experiments that is going to deal with local policy problems. So they have become less responsive to local problems even then compared to before. I also worry that even though there is a stricter central control of local policy direction, again, I don't see any mechanism that Beijing has to promote long-term sustainable development locally. They cannot simply change the incentive structure of the local officials who only look at my achievement that can be shown in the next one to three years. 
unless they change their incentive, sustainability is going to be questionable for China's future development. Now, how do we change that? If we keep someone in the locality for more than three years, and there are actually local officials who stay in their post for longer, there is very limited research with conflicting evidence to show whether they are indeed then promoting sustainability. Beijing would be concerned still that these these people become local emperors who have their own network and not listen to them. So I doubt that is going to be the step that Beijing will take. So so far, I do not see a valid solution on the table that would deal with this problem in China. A final point is I'm really worried about the relation between the Chinese state and the market. In the past, a lot of sustainable effort and governance is actually substituted by the market. Firms come in and do things that the Chinese local governments did not have the resources or the incentives to do. But nowadays, with the tightening of political control and the loss of trust in private firms, and that the local officials more and more start to see private firms as political capital resources where they expropriate private firms for political needs rather than giving the firms enough space to do whatever they're supposed to do, I'm afraid that the Chinese state is also losing an important ally in achieving sustainable development. Well, that's a great answer to the question and I, and I think leaves us with a lot to think about because it does continue to put question marks up for the system's ability to, to adapt to, to future challenges. And I think it's interesting that one of the things I, I do give Xi Jinping credit for is relative to many other national level leaders, he thinks about governance much more than and the practicalities of governance more than many other national leaders. I guess the problem is many of his answers to fundamental governance challenges uh, may be adding some you know, new fragilities or pathologies into the political system. But nonetheless, this issue of governance capability and competency is an issue now, certainly in the United States, we're having to think a lot more about now that we've seen the, the malfunctioning of our own political system. Really excellent points, uh, Ming, and, and I think tie very nicely the, the specific outcomes and, and dynamics that you found when you were doing your, your countless interviews, but tying this back to some really big thorny questions that we have about the future evolution of China's political system. And I think the, the big, big, big question mark is, it's clear things are changing in China at the governance level, but I think we won't know for some time how able the system is to confront, overcome, and adapt to uh, future challenges. Many of them are going to revolve around technology. Many of them are going to, re you know, revolve around this new phase of, you know, China's, uh, you know, external economic environment, where the, uh, you know, a lot of the drivers of of economic growth that it's been able to consume for four decades are, are, are starting to shift or slow down. So there's a lot of really big, important questions. But anyway, really appreciate your time. And we're all uh, looking forward to your book, which will be completed in this year? Next year. Next year, which I think is, you know, about so much more as, as hopefully, you know, listeners now know is about, you know, so much more than the specific case study, but really ties into these these issues about, political and governance resiliency, which is such an important question for, for the United States and the world. So anyway, Ming, I really want to thank you for your time. And I, I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. 
from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 